Our sermon reading this morning is from Psalm 51. Let's read at verse 1. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. According to your great compassion, blow out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Yet you desired faithfulness even in the womb. You taught me wisdom in that secret place. Cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquity. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant in me a willing spirit to sustain me. Then I will teach transgressors your ways so that sinners will turn back to you. Deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed, O God, you who are God my Saviour, and my tongue will sing of your righteousness. Open my lips, Lord, and my mouth will declare your praise. You do not delight in sacrifice or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. My sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit. A broken and contrite heart, you God, will not despise. May it please you to prosper Zion, to build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in the sacrifices of the righteous, in burnt offerings offered whole. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. Hey everyone, keep those Bibles open as we look into Psalm 51 together. I'm going to pray. Heavenly Father, thank you that we can read your word. And as I explain it now, please give me wisdom and clarity. And please give us all ears that hear it, minds that understand it, and hearts and lives that are changed because of it. Amen. In 1797, the former US Treasurer Alexander Hamilton, I'm on the screen there, was busted. If you've seen the musical Hamilton, you'll know what I'm talking about. But for those who haven't, he'd been having an affair for a number of years and was eventually caught by some colleagues. As a prominent government leader and a war hero, his national reputation and legacy was on the line. And so, he was busted. What did he do? In the face of his own sin and in the face of his terrible actions, Hamilton's priority wasn't to apologise to his wife or his kids, and it wasn't to accept the justice that he rightfully deserved either. Instead, Hamilton released an eloquently worded document attempting to protect and argue the case of the only person he thought that mattered, himself. And that's it up there. But what about you? What do you do 
when you've been busted? Where do you turn when you've been caught in your sin? Maybe you find it easy to lie and proclaim your own innocence. Maybe you blame other people and attempt to shift the spotlight somewhere else. Maybe you fear the consequences for your sin, and so you keep it a deep, dark secret that no one else can know. Maybe you get racked with guilt, a mark on your conscience that never leaves. Or maybe you respond by devoting all your time and energy and resources to charity or good works, just trying to make things right again. I know that I'm guilty of a number, if not all, of those responses. And you probably are too. But what about King David? What does he do when he's been busted? He's been busted in uh, 2 Samuel 12, and Psalm 51 is our response. It's our insight into the mind and heart of a man who has been called out for his sin. And so if you weren't here last week or you haven't read 2 Samuel uh, 12, then please do so, not now, after this sermon. David's response in Psalm 51 is an emotional plea to God that reveals volumes about the nature of sin, humanity, justice, judgment, cleansing, forgiveness, repentance, sacrifice, and our own hearts. So we're going to get into it now. Have a look at verse 1 to 3. It'll also be on the screen. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. According to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Having just been caught by the prophet Nathan, David doesn't try to argue his case. Instead, in verse 1, he cries out for God's mercy. And the word iniquity, which is in verse 2, simply means sin. He recognises that it makes him unclean and that he needs to be cleansed. And that's in verse 2. The offence of David's sin is so crystal clear in his mind and it's constantly with him. It's always before me. That's what he says in verse 3. And so when he's been busted, rather than looking selfishly inwards like Hamilton did, he appeals for honour. It causes him to look upwards to God. Because we can see that in verse 1. He appeals for mercy on the basis of God's Love and compassion, two character traits that are at the very heart of who God is. And so far, good on you, David. You're not looking inwards, you're looking upwards. Good stuff. But surely he steps out of line in verse 4. Have a look at it with me. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Yet you desired faithfulness even in the womb. You taught me wisdom in that secret place. Surely the audacity of David to claim that he has only sinned against God is ignorant at best and downright offensive at worst. 
What about Bathsheba? Is Uriah turning in his grave at these words? Hasn't David sinned against them too? Verse 4 is confronting and a little jarring. But David is on the money here. David has only sinned against God because God is the one responsible for the laws, don't commit adultery, don't lie, don't murder, that David has broken. David didn't break Uriah's laws and standards. He didn't break Nathan the prophet's laws and standards. He didn't break his own laws and standards. David can only be judged as sinful according to God's law and standards that he has broken. Now, of course, David's sin against God has ramifications on other people. It has. It's on Bathsheba and Uriah. But the very heart of sin is rebellion against God alone, rejecting God's rule and standards and putting ourselves in his place as the rule maker and standard creator. So David has his perspective of sin right. In this moment when he's been busted, his perspective is correct. And he rightfully acknowledges God's place as the perfect, just, and righteous judge at the end of verse 4. But then he continues in verse 5 and 6. You can see it there. And he provides more insight into the nature of sin and humanity, which, to be completely honest, is uncomfortable to hear. From the very moment of our conception, we are sinful. Sin isn't an external problem that enters into us from the outside, like, I don't know, catching a virus. Sin is in our nature. Sin is the default factory condition of just who we are. And Jesus says this as well. In Mark 7, he rebukes the Pharisees by stating that sin isn't an issue of external uncleanliness, but rather the internal uncleanliness of the heart. And so we need to be really careful. The worldly lie that's in all those Disney movies, but we hear it in lots of other places as well, to just trust your heart. You'll be fine if you just trust your heart. What a quick and easy way to end in disaster. Following our hearts always ends up in a destination that is far away from God. As God says through the prophet Jeremiah uh, on the screen, the heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? There's another comic um, which I think brings home the point well. If you can't read it, I'll read it out for you. So there's a mother speaking to his son. This is a difficult decision. In times like this, you have to learn to just trust your heart. Little Jimmy, just trust your heart. And so Jimmy looks inwards and he says, Okay, heart, what's it going to be? Sin. And little Jimmy rejoices. David grasps this truth. David recognises his sinful heart, the weight of his rebellion against God, and the judgment that he justly deserves. And this is true for us as well. This isn't just David. This is true for us as well. Our only hope is God's mercy and forgiveness. And so that's what David asks for in verse 7 to 9. Have a read with it. 
Cleanse me with hyssop, and I will be clean. Wash me, and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquity. David feels filthy before God, like a coal miner covered from head to toe in grime and dirt and muck. The burden of his sin and its consequences make his bones feel crushed under the weight of his guilt in verse 8. Maybe you're here today and you can identify with David. You might be crippled by remorse or feel tarnished and broken because of what you've done. If you're here today and you can identify with these words or if this is you, then I'm deeply sorry. But have a look at what he asks for. In God's grace, he can wash us clean from all impurity and sin. David mentions the word hyssop in verse 7. It looks like this. It's like a purple reed thing. Uh, it doesn't look that impressive. Uh, but it was used in Old Testament rituals and the law to cleanse something. Now, hyssop was used in lots of different things. It was used to sprinkle the blood of sacrifices onto people to make them clean again. Or perhaps most significantly, hyssop was used by the Israelites during the Passover in Egypt to wipe the blood of the lamb on their doorways so that God's judgment would pass over them. By referring to hyssop, here in verse 7, David clings to God's promises to wash him clean from his sin. And God is faithful to his promises. He does do so. But God's promises for David are ultimately fulfilled for us in Jesus. Because it's the blood of Jesus on the cross who washes us clean. Jesus took upon himself all the filth and guilt and muck and judgment of sin so that we might not be crushed, but instead have joy and gladness because he was crushed in our place. By looking at Jesus on the cross, God hides his face from our sin and so that we can be whiter than snow. Those words in verse 7. And there's not much whiter things in the world than fresh snow. God gives us cleanliness and relief and release from the burden of sin. And so that we can echo David's words, let the bones you have crushed rejoice. But David realizes something though, because our problem of sin runs deeper than just individual transgressions and messing up every now and then. Because we saw earlier the origin of sin is internal not external it's the factory default condition of our hearts if sin is to be fixed then we need a heart transplant we need a software update of our hearts we need a rewiring and reworking and that's what he asks for in verse 10 to 12 have a look create in me a pure heart O god and renew a steadfast spirit within me do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation 
and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. So the factory default mode of our hearts is sin. From conception, it is. And because of this, everything we do is stained by sin and never good enough for God's perfect standards. So even at our very best behavior, our sinful interior makes us fall short of God's glory. And so we need a complete clean out. We need a deep clean, rewiring, refreshing, renewing of the interiors of our hearts. In the words of David, we need to be renewed and restored with a fresh start. And by God's grace, he promises to give us a new heart by trusting in Jesus through the Holy Spirit. You see, the Holy Spirit gives us a 100-point restoration and recalibration of our hearts so that we can know God and we can follow him. The Holy Spirit works in our hearts, transforming our thoughts and actions and words to be more like Jesus. What an incredible gift this is. And completely for free. It's on the blood of Jesus that we can have this refreshing of our hearts, a reworking of our hearts. The Holy Spirit gives us a pure heart and a steadfast resolve to live God's way. But wait a second. Put the brakes on. Did you guys see verse 11? What is David talking about here? He prays hoping that he doesn't lose the Holy Spirit. So is this something that we should be concerned about as well? If it's to do with the sinfulness and reworking of our hearts, it should be something we're concerned about. Well, David's request in verse 11, what he says there, is understood in its context, in its Old Testament context, where the Holy Spirit would be given to, well, do lots of things, but he'd be given to the king of Israel to confirm them as God's chosen ruler. And so we witness this uh, when David's predecessor, Saul, King Saul, loses the spirit and David receives it in the space of two verses uh, in 1 Samuel 16, 13 and 14. It's on the screen. It says this, So Samuel, the prophet Samuel at the time, took the horn of oil and anointed him, which is David, in the presence of his brothers. And from that day on, the spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon David. And Samuel then went to Ramah. Now the spirit of the Lord had departed from Saul. But there is a major difference for us. Since Jesus, the promise of the Holy Spirit in our hearts doesn't rest on ourselves. We don't need to be a king of Israel. We don't need to do the right thing. No, it rests on the unchanging, all-cleansing, once-for-all blood of Jesus that restores our relationship with God. We don't need to worry about it. Have a look in Ephesians 1, 13 and 14, and the confidence it gives us. Have a look. You also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. So when you believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are in God's possession to the praise of his glory. Do we need to worry about losing the Holy Spirit if we trust in Jesus? Well, no. If you have the Holy Spirit, you can't lose him again. 
He's the deposit guaranteeing our inheritance of eternal life. It's not a guarantee if you can take it away. The Holy Spirit works in our hearts to rewire us, but it works to keep those who trust in Jesus to continue trusting in Jesus. So if you trust in Jesus right now, you have the Holy Spirit and you are saved and guaranteed for glory with him. The Christian life is not one lived in uncertainty, hoping that we've done enough from day to day to just maybe stay in God's good books for another day and, oh, new day, got to start again. No, that's depending on your own works, and that's missing the point. The Christian life is lived in confidence in Jesus' sacrifice on the cross for us and living with him as king as a result. We can rejoice with full assurance in the joy of God's salvation that David speaks of in verse 12, the joy of God's salvation, because he who promised it to us is faithful. And so we've reached the turning point of Psalm 51, because from verse 1 to 12, he's been looking backwards at what's happened. From verse 13 onwards, David shifts his focus from his sin and uncleanliness and instead looks at what he's going to be doing now as a cleansed person with a changed heart. What does this repentance look like? He's looking now forwards as a man rejoicing in how God has forgiven him, even though he hasn't deserved it. How God has washed him clean, how God has given him a new heart, even though he did nothing at all to bring that about. Now, for Christians, if you're a Christian here today, then your ears should be pricking up because this is you. But also, these verses are challenging for us who trust in Jesus because from verse 13 to the end of the psalm, David isn't just going through the motions. I think sometimes we can fall into the trap of doing all the right things, of saying all the right stuff. What is it? God, Jesus, Bible, yet we're sweet. But our hearts are far from it. And God cares about our heart. We've just seen that. Of course he cares about our heart. He's given us a new one. The truths of God's amazing grace and mercy should be overflowing in joy from our hearts. And so we see that it changes David's words and it should change our words. Have a look at his responses in front of you. In verse 14, David's tongue sings of God's righteousness. In verse 15, his mouth declares God's praise. In verse 13, David teaches and tells others about God so that they might be cleansed and know what God has done for them and that they might know this joy as well. Declaring God's praises and singing of God's righteousness is the appropriate response for what God has done for us. It's just a no-brainer. And so I want to challenge us to think for a second. When we sing at church, obviously we can't at the moment, but when we can again, what do we sound like? When we chat with each other after the service, what is the content of our conversations? Or when we talk, when we text, when we post online, when we message our friends or our spouse or our children or our siblings or our mates, what's the content of our conversations then? Can they tell that we're thankful? Can they tell the joy that's in our hearts? Jesus says in Matthew 12, it's from the overflow of the heart that the mouth speaks. 
and we have a new heart. We've just seen that by the Holy Spirit. And so the challenge is clear. If our words aren't reflecting this reality, then we need to recenter ourselves on the amazing salvation and joy that God has given us in Jesus. There's another change it makes, and it's a change to our lives. As a person, it's been made right with God by none of his own effort. David offers his entire life as a living sacrifice to God in humility and thankfulness. And you can see that in verse 17. David says in verse 16, God isn't impressed by the sacrifices and burnt offerings, a.k.a. the works and efforts of a person who's just going through the motions or who's doing those things hoping to be good enough to be saved. No, look at verse 19. God delights in the sacrifices and efforts and obedience of someone who has already been saved. Someone who has already been cleansed by the blood of Jesus and has been given a new heart that knows and follows him. So, if you're a Christian, does your life look like this response? Particularly in verse 17. A humble and wholehearted sacrifice to God. David's response here oozes with the attitude that Jesus teaches his disciples later, which is, the life of a Christian means to take up your cross daily and follow him. And it changes David's priorities as well. Look in verse 18. David wants nothing more than for, David, for, than for God to establish God's kingdom. And so we should have the same response as David. Not praying for a physical kingdom, like David saw it then, but rather for a spiritual kingdom. A spiritual kingdom of cleansed people with new hearts who all love and follow Jesus as the king. And so, we're thinking about it at the start, when we get busted for our sin, where should we turn? What do you do? Well, I think the answer from Psalm 51 is pretty clear. We should be turning to God. We should be looking upwards. You can't read Psalm 51 and think that our sin doesn't matter. You can't read Psalm 51 and think that we can cleanse ourselves in our own effort as well. You can't read Psalm 51 and think that having been cleansed by God, that our actions don't matter. Because our sin does matter. Our actions in our hearts make us guilty and deserving of judgment before God. But God can make us clean, wiping away our guilt and filth and muck and by trusting in the blood of Jesus on the cross. And God gives us a new heart by the Holy Spirit that knows him loves him, follows him, and guarantees our eternal inheritance with him. And so out of the certainty and joy of the cleansing by the blood of Jesus and our new hearts given to us by the Holy Spirit, let's be living sacrifices for God in our lives, proclaiming his praises with our mouths. Jesus gives us sweet, sweet relief from the burden of our sin. God washes us clean and gives us new hearts by trusting in him. So let's make sure we do that, hey? I'm going to pray.
Heavenly Father, we are sorry for our sin and for sinning against you, for breaking your law and your standards and putting ourselves in your place. Thank you for the blood of Jesus shed on the cross that washes us clean of our sin. And thank you for the Holy Spirit, which gives us new hearts that know you and love you. Father, please help us to live our lives as living sacrifices to you, proclaiming your praises with our mouths as we go about it. Help us to be proclaiming this to all people, to each other, and to those who don't know it yet as well. Amen.